Tom, I, I, the, I want to start with something that gave me such anxiety and is actually 20 years old, but it only just gave me anxiety today. Is one of your children? <laughs> what, let me just ask you, let me start with this. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you had a massive computer failure to the point where you seriously lost data? I have been so lucky that I have ultimately been able to get the data back. Like it's gone, but it was user error and I just figured it out. And now you help me figure out how to turn on autosave. And I have yeah. a time machine, like a, the time machine and a real time machine. Yeah, right. So I can, so go, can back go back and, and, and get data. Exactly. Yeah. So I've been, because I'm me, I've been extraordinarily lucky that that hasn't happened too much. But the idea of it is so scary. You're in the film business and you work non-linearly, right? So that means you're working, you're editing on your computer, right? You have no film Correct. anymore. There's Correct. no, and I imagine when you're shooting, you're not even shooting on tape, right? You're shooting on disc. Now, yeah. Oh, that actually happened during Adam and Evelyn, where it was the one of the biggest short films that I made, mm -hmm. uh, where we lost, we thought we lost because everything was on P five cards ps i can't remember what it was but that was when it was being downloaded there was one person whose job it was to take it off the discs and put it onto a hard drive take it off the disc anyways we got home that night and had lost an entire day uh, of shooting and in a short film for no money we were just dead you can't yeah. we don't have enough money to go back it turned out that the person who was looking at it just needed to scroll down <laughs> it was there <laughs> it was just out of it but that was after me having diarrhea for like three hours <laughs> well, sorry I, go ahead i read this story today and it caused me to look up something that uh, that actually in terms of the filmmaking business this this film is is particularly uh uh powerful to me and that is toy mm. story 2 do you know the toy story 2 story not at all uh so the work was being done and it was very tight and lassiter was working on a bug's life and his team was over there so there was this other team working on toy story 2 and it was originally supposed to be a direct video thing and oh, um, wow. that that wasn't working as well in terms of the contract deal so there was just a lot of like examination of what's going to go on and in the process while routinely cleaning files uh, oh. one of the animators accidentally typed slash bin slash rm slash r slash f asterisk now i know that's a thing but they're all using these unix-based classic systems. rookie mistake <laughs> well and and what that does uh is actually does a pretty significant cleanup by effectively deleting all your files right oh uh, my god why and, is and so, that a thing but it's also because a film is so big it takes a long time to do that so they accidentally right. start this deletion. It's it's called the root folder, right? They do this deletion of the root for folder of the Toy Story two assets on all of on Pixar's internal network servers, right? It's terrible. Mm. So I did not know this story. I did not know this story, and it turns out I came up. You remember our our old friend Quora, right? Yep. Turns out Owen Jacob was one of the uh, technical directors on the film, and he was the first one to notice because character models started disappearing from the works oh, in progress. In Can you imagine? <laughs> it's like the snap. Like, they, they just things just start disappearing. <laughs> the Thanos snap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they shut down the servers, but according to Wikipedia, they'd lost 90% of the last two years of work, and the backups had failed three months prior. 
Oh my God. So why is this? That's, that is a summary of what Wikipedia had said of it. But Quora came up and Owen Jacob actually jumped in and said, Hey, oh. I, I, I was there. I'm the guy in all of the stories about this. So let me tell you what happened. So he says hmm. uh, in his words, it wasn't multiple terabytes of information, neither all the rendered frames, nor all the data necessary to render those frames in animation model shaders set and lighting data files was that size back then. It's all very, very big. Uh, but it, we, the, the problem was it was unclear what files were deleted. It wasn't just like, Oh, Woody's gone. Let's go find a backup of Woody. It was. Okay. It was the problem was they started going back through all their backups and their backups were reporting, hey, you know, you've got good backups here. But it turns out the backup software was flummoxed by a disk full error and didn't know that it wasn't sending errors that the backups had failed three months before prior and so Ugh. it was this uh it was this other animator who was uh, on maternity leave and had taken her work computer home and was animating off the network and said hey i actually have some of these files i'm going to bring my computer in and we're going to assess it and figure out how we can rebuild it so they start rebuilding all these files and i mean a Skeleton Crew is looking at 30,000 individual files and frames and character models to assess whether or not they can be rebuilt. And eventually, they totally rebuild it. Uh, And and the way he says, you know, the total number of files involved was well into six figures, but we'll round down to 100,000 for the sake of this discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Man. If your heart isn't beating fast right now, then you're not wired right. If you're in this business, that is extraordinary. So they took this two-month-old backup. uh, They took this animator's computer. They had stray files from failed renders that they brought back into the fold, and they individually repaired this and were able to essentially, like there were pieces of the movie that they just weren't able to, to rebuild. And so they just rebuilt what they could and created a movie out of it. And, and that was Toy Story 2. No, this well, is the this is the part that will really frustrate you. All this oh. work, all this work, John Lasseter, Steve Jobs, everybody comes back in and they're discussing the movie and they're like, you know what? We need to, re- to release this movie theatrically. And the movie that we have here, the story is weak. We're starting over. And according to Owen, he says, some months later, Pixar rewrote the film from almost the ground up, and we made Toy Story 2 again. The rewritten film is the one you saw in theaters and that you can now watch on Blu-ray. So they fixed everything and then threw it out? And then threw it out. God! I think about that story, and I am in an internal fireworks fit. Because I have lost a significant amount of data. I have lost data that's important to me, and I wasn't able to rebuild it. And I had never heard this story. I think I would have just given up computers had, had yeah. I heard this story when that happened to me. It's, it's terrible. That's- but as a matter of perspective, you were working on Cars 4. <laughs> <laughs> What's That Smell, a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Tommy Metz III. And every week we each drag one of our deepest, darkest anxieties into the light to share it, learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Reach out. 
Wow. I don't know about that one. That was something. Okay. Reach out. Go to whatsthatsmell.net and send us a story of your anxiety. Just push the button. It says submit your anxiety. It's right at the top. You can't miss it. Send it to us there, and we just might talk about you on this show. And with that, Thomas, I will go first. I'm a real mess today, Tom. Oh. You know how sometimes we say we're sweat prepping? Yep. Yeah, no, it's been a real day of it. Oh, and, no. and I realized <laughs> I realized that we've spent now we're we're nearing the end of season five of this show. So weird. So many years we've been talking about our anxieties, and there's one that we have not named. And I I can't I really can't believe that we haven't actually talked about it yet. Okay. Uh because I think you and I both suffer from it heavily and we've talked around it a lot mm. i mean a lot mm. but we haven't talked of it and so i ask you some questions okay do you worry what people think of you <laughs> <laughs> yes i do okay do you worry about the ability to your ability to pursue the future that you desire Sure. Do you, uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you worry that <laughs> this is like a greatest hits? Do you okay, worry yeah. that people will lose interest in you? Yeah. You, Abandonment. We talked about uh-huh. in this last episode. Yeah, I know. Yep. You worry about how smart or capable you are? Um. Yep. Of course. Yeah. How about disappointing people whose opinion you value? <laughs> Why do you have my diary? <laughs> do, you, do you tell people beforehand? I don't even care what you say to these anymore. Do you tell people beforehand that you don't expect to succeed in order to lower their expectations? <laughs> Aww, sure. <laughs> uh, do you have trouble imagining what you could have done differently to succeed if you fail at something? Yeah, maybe. Sure. Uh, do you do you often get last minute headaches, stomach aches, or physical symptoms that prevent you from completing uh, a a job or or getting ready for a job? Uh, not headaches. Sometimes stomach aches, and I get the shaky hands. Oh yeah, shaky hands. Yeah, mm, jazz yeah. jazz hands, but more of a palsy. <laughs> <laughs> right. I call them scream hands. <laughs> oh, good. No, that's good too. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Uh, how often do you find you run out of time to before like leading up to an event or a job? Mm, only because I have put my back against the wall by postponing it for so long. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So we've talked a little bit about that. But what hit me this morning was this fear, this anxiety that I have over. I'm sitting there saying to myself, God, I'm just not ready. I'm not prepared. I am terrified of not being prepared. And I've never put my finger on that. And it turns out Mm. a quick search. And there's a word for it, Tom. The word exists. And the fear the, of not being the prepared. The fear of not being prepared. It's actually a. Uh, it, it's actually related to uh, perfectionism. It is atelophobia. Atela. Oh, it's a real word. Yeah. No, it's that's a real. It's word. not one of the make them ups. No, we, we do make them ups internet. too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, this wow. Is, this is a real thing, and uh, so we've talked about this uh, in the past. Part of the reason that that it's so hard to talk about this word is how meta the experience is right now. That it took me so much to actually get to the point where I could even begin to prepare for this show about not being prepared. (laughs) Yeah. You started thinking about this on episode one, season one. (laughs) Yeah. I had to go search for for it to see if we've ever done this. And it turns out back in season three, we did something related to it. And it was, we had a listener submission Mm. where a listener wrote in, do you remember? 
I'm not sure. It was the listener wrote in about how um, they could not write email. Oh, yeah. Yes, right? yes, this, yes. This was, uh-huh. re- this was related to the perfectionism bit, Correct. which, which yes. I think is, is really fascinating. All of those things that I, that I read are uh, symptomatic of atelophobia, right? These are the things that you think, the, the repetitive thought patterns, the things that are going on in your, in your uh, brain that define what your experience is of the fear of not being prepared. And often part one of the challenges that we have with it is it's often mistaken for one of the symptoms like for example um fear of giving presentations oh i see it's so they're so tied together yes. one can hide behind the other yeah, exactly and you, it it deals with such a specific symptom of this that uh it it's really hard to to separate yourself and say you know what it's not just presentations presentations involves the public speaking and the potential failure and the the social uh issues that come along with failing in a public situation and all of that is those are very loud voices Right. Right. And uh, they're very, very difficult to to silence those in order to to, um, you know, to step back and see that it's I really am. I, I really am afraid of not being enough in many circumstances, not just presenting. What do you think about sure. this? You, talk a little bit about your experience. On it. I have actually been going through something like this or working on this process during the pandemic and part of it involved that class that i took yeah. and that paper that almost right. got away from me right that, that, <laughs> that nearly killed about. you yeah one of the things that i have just i mean and it's a little embarrassing to say just recently learned because it should be obvious but it's something that i've learned about myself that i need to do is when it's called setting the table actually i call it um uh packing my briefcase okay before, when I get a new project, sometimes what happens is, and it's not due right away, I don't look at it yet. Okay. I sort of give it a glance, and I'm like, okay, so I can sort of percolate on that. But whether it's learning a song for a show that I'm in uh, before the pandemic, writing a paper, I've learned that what I need to do is really, I don't have to learn it right away, but I have to know what I'm going to have to learn. So if it's a song, look at the choreography, see how difficult it is. Look at the lyrics, highlight them, make sure, because if I don't do that, then it just exists in this really dark, scary bubble called to do that is looming over me. And it becomes so much more than it needs to be when I finally sit down, when my back is up against the wall and I look at it, I'm like, oh, I was in agony for two weeks. And instead, this took two hours. <laughs> yeah, I just right. never looked at it. Yeah. So I think that that relates, I hope, I hope that relates um, to being prepared is one of the things my fear of being unprepared keeps me from being prepared. And so I'm learning that I really need to unpack so I can pack. Well, yeah, I, I mean, that I think directly applies, particularly when you talk about something like choreography or learning music, right? Because right. it's not like you can, uh, like some people, if you're really great at a present at giving presentations, right? If you're if you're ultimately a pretty good improviser and you can, you know, kind of think on your feet, you may still have this fear, even though your personal experience is when you're under pressure, you can deliver. Right. But when you have to like really learn something, memorize a song, memorize lyrics, get the choreography down so you don't look like an ape, like that <laughs> is to me something I mean, that takes a certain amount of time. Like predictable repetition right. to Correct. actually get good at that and you can't that, sweat prep choreography yeah, or a song sweat. you <laughs> have to you have to you have to deep 
you like get it ingrained in your head. Which is weird because yeah. I think Bob Fosse was actually the one who came up with sweat prepping. No, you can't do that. Like it's just yeah. not it and that that's a thing that really stresses me out. When I have like cold sweat nightmares, it's usually around something like that, something where I'm not prepared. But it's not the thing that I'm really scared of being not prepared of. It's something mm-hmm. that I can't be prepared to do, like, you mm. know, front an opera or climb a, a mountain or something like it's just sure. it takes a climb lot an opera. It, yeah, I could climb an opera. It takes a lot of time to learn to do the things that I'm not prepared to do. And, and so that's <laughs> right. like the metaphor for my general day to day, like happy Monday kind of experience. So. Now, we because we've talked about this, I wanted to introduce a new concept that was just introduced to me very recently, and uh, okay. that is the stages of acceptance. Mm, okay. So th- this new concept I want to that was new to me mm-hmm. is uh, is a staged approach to dealing with with this thing. You've heard of the stages of of uh, grief, right? Dabda. You're actually you've acronymed the the stages of grief. Is that what you just did? Yeah, I thought everyone. I thought like that was like Roy G. Biv. Like people call it Debda. No, I've never in my life heard that. Has that? I don't huh. mean to. No, I'm the foolish one here. I've never heard that. And I think maybe in these circles, you are now the cool one. Is that weird? Because <laughs> I have a grief acronym. <laughs> you have a grief. That doesn't acronym? sound cool. <laughs> you know what would be cool? Like being a quarterback. <laughs> Instead, I have grief acronyms all locked up. Well, yeah, I think I've just always thought of it as Dabda. This this is a new I've got a new one for you, and it's Dre. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, uh, this is uh, uh, I would say originated by Marty Cooper, uh, mm. uh, therapist Marty mind. Cooper, and uh, back in 2011, uh, he starts looking at this, posting about this mini map, and and he calls it the path of acceptance, and. Mm. Uh, the path of acceptance can be used in in any of these contexts, right? Where you're you're trying to understand how you relate to the world around you and come to terms with something that maybe um, you can't necessarily change, but have to change your behavior to make sense of it. Whether that's you know divorce or ADHD or you know s- grieving serious illness or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so he came up with this what he calls the the five stages, but it's actually four stages and a prelude. As Marty Cooper says, oh, okay. And the first one is denial. That's prelude. Now we we know denial from the stages of of grief. grief that's the right? D and Dabda. The, yeah, the Dabda. Yeah. Uh, the the way Marty Cooper says is that you know there is no problem. There's no difficulty. I'm not doing anything wrong. Everything's fine. Right. I'm doing okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You now, sold me. That's the that is what uh, Marty calls being asleep at the wheel. Sure. Stage one is recognition. Right. I know I am fill in the blank. I know I am terrified of being unprepared. I know I have ADHD. I know I am depressed. I know any of these things. Right. I know that is here. Also, I refuse to accept it because it doesn't fit my mental model. Right. And and what comes out of that is can be just rage and frustration and and exhaustion and you know, it, it spirals that fear, right? Because it's like metal on metal. Yeah, totally. Because your mind knows something's wrong, right? Your right. mind understands that you are fundamentally like you're fighting something that may be broken, right? You're, right. you're trying to, to, you know that it's there, but you can't do anything about it. That's just where you are. You need some sort of kick to get 
out of to move through that cycle and and like like the stages of grief this is not a linear stage this is more like you know jeremy bear me like it's just it, it is a, a stage <laughs> that is written in curly cues right got it and, and so you you jump back and forth between all these stages so that was stage one's recognition i know there's a problem i'm unwilling to accept that it exists okay stage two is resignation Mm. Oh, well, in Indabda, it's oh no, it's anger. Acceptance is way at the end. Go ahead. Right. Well, this is not even we acceptance, following. right? Resignation oh, okay. is I know that I am X. I know mm-hmm. that I can't beat it. So I guess there's just nothing I can do. Oh, giving up. Yes. Yeah. Got Resignation it. is my God. I just, you know, it, it's like you can hear the truth in the statement you can hear this this future state where one day you're going to be able to make sense of this and rationalize it but right now today all you're doing is saying i know that i'm depressed and i am too exhausted to even attempt to beat it i guess this is how i have to live my life oof okay right i know i am terrified of not being prepared i i recognize it also i know this maybe it's just going to be too hard. It's just it's who I too am. hard to get yeah. prepared. Yeah, so. it's going to be too hard to get prepared, or I'm never yep. gonna. I'm never gonna live without this fear. I'm never mm-hmm. gonna be able to get to the other side of it. That's resignation. Stage two, stage three is, and and this will this will bake your noodle a little bit. This Ooh. is not the last stage. Stage three is acceptance. Not the last stage, right? The devil, you say. So, well, is the last stage like snacks? <laughs> Hydrate. It is. It's right. just hydrate. Uh, okay, so, so acceptance. acceptance here is, and, and this is where a lot of people, you could stop, right? It says, yeah, I'm depressed. And I know I can't beat it by fighting it. So what do I do then? And okay. it gives you the opportunity to start asking questions about it to start saying hey I'm, I'm not giving up i'm not i don't need to give up that it turns out there are examples of people who are depressed who are are feeling these kinds of phobias and fears who haven't given up and you know what their lives it turns out is kind of they're kind of okay like they actually are able to move forward i could see myself as being somebody like that somebody who is not driven and owned by their depression adhd anxiety whatever so there's a, a big part of just optim, optimism. Maybe. Also. I don't know. Like a, I maybe guess a, you could be, a light through the clouds? I can accept and not be optimistic about it, I guess. No, that's not true. You'd have to be optimistic about it. Otherwise, you're because in Because you think there's a chance. Yeah. Right. Then, you're, then you stopped at that cul-de-sac. Yeah. yeah. Now, okay. optimism and good humor are two different things. I guess I can, I can be optimistic and not happy about it. Sure. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So that's acceptance. So now we've got uh, our, our big three. We started denial, recognition, resignation, acceptance, and the final one. This is the this is the one that I I that that's you know you gotta you gotta do some work. It's embrace. Mm-hmm. Oh, so this is effectively leaning in, right? This says, okay, I'm depressed. I know I'm depressed. I accept that I'm depressed. I'm working with my depression openly. I'm not hiding from it. I'm not hiding it from the world around me. And honestly, I'm curious about what this experience is going to teach me and what I can potentially teach others about it. Right. Right. Because this, and of course, the same can be said about anxiety. Exactly. You're using depression. I as am. A it's thing, just a, anxiety, a yeah. fill in the blanks. Right. Sure, so sure. I accept that I'm anxious. I accept that I live with anxiety and I'm open about it and I'm curious about it. And 
I recognize that it will not be an easy journey, but it is part of me. It is part of my self-identity, and this is something that I can, I, I have to live with, and I also have to do other things in my life so I cannot be driven by it. I think the final stage should be start a podcast. <laughs> Because I feel like that's sort of what we've done. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's a version of leaning into it and not just saying, I'm just going to be strong and not anxious. We're being vulnerable and we're sharing it and finding out that a lot of people, of course, feel the same way. Well, and that was a really interesting observation that, that, um, you know, this idea of embrace even if you don't, it, it doesn't mean you're an expert, right? It doesn't mean right. that you've you've actually solved the problem, right? All it means is that is that you are bringing an openness and a vulnerability to your exploration of living with it, uh, right. That that I think is can be really powerful, and uh, in many respects, being able to be open about it enough to attempt to teach it or at least illuminate it for others uh, mm. is part of this this stage embrace that's you know let's let's live loud and proud with whatever we are living with that we right we were once you know scared of i love it maybe it's worth it i don't know look <laughs> I just think that this guy Marty Are you having trouble accepting Cooper, acceptance a little bit. No, it's, it's you know, it's, it, I can imagine somebody sitting out there listening to this saying that's a bunch of hoo-ha. I don't oh. have to live with it and oh. I'm not going to live with it. And, oh. you know, like, who is this person? Right. Oh, he's a pirate. <laughs> I can imagine it sounding a little bit, a, a little bit fluffy and um, but like kind of like a, that's easy to say. Right. Right, right, one hundred percent. But I, I also think it's worth just knowing this and knowing that Marty Cooper came up with this thing, and the stages are denial, recognition, resignation, acceptance, and embrace. Because odds are, if you are growling like a pirate, it probably <laughs> means you haven't embraced it yet. And maybe, right. maybe right. asking yourself some of those questions um, or, or phrasing your relationship with whatever this thing is. Uh, is it, it might help you reach the other side of that. I prefer this model because I think the outcome embrace offers a little bit of joy, you know, like yeah. just a little dose of joy, because frankly, I get a great deal of joy out of doing things like this podcast and exploring these things and asking questions about anxiety, um, you know, that that I also live with. I, I think it's fantastic. And I just wish the same for other people who are struggling. I guess that's it. Mm-hmm. And also probably some Twinkies. Oh, you're also wishing them some Twinkies? Yeah, that's kinda. So, so yeah. it was snacks. It was I snacks was right. all along. Do you see what th- we did there? <laughs> what a twist. <laughs> As Benjamin Franklin wrote in 1789 in a letter to John Baptiste Leroy, Quote, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And throughout history, some of these taxes have strained credulity. Why, back in 1698, Russian Tsar Peter the Great placed a tax on beards. 
In an attempt to bring Russia up to speed with Western Europe's trend for clean-shaven faces, Peter imposed annual beard taxes on his subjects. His poorer subjects were allowed to beard it up for just two kopecks a year, while wealthier citizens had to pay a whopping 100 rubles. Bearded taxpayers were given a copper token to carry around as proof they had paid the fee. On the other end, men who refused to pay the tax could be forcibly shaved by the police on sight. The Russian beer tax of the 1690s was a mandatory and stupid way to spend one's money. Looking for a way to spend your dough that's both optional and fun? Why not become a What's That Smell Panic Pal? For just $35, non-renewing is just one payment of $35. You will help support the time and expenses for the production of this season. And also, you will have access to the live stream. You can be watching us. You can be watching me mess this up right now. You will also have access to members-only episodes like the COVID sessions and other bonus material that we have coming down the pike. You will also get a sticker and a certificate of best friendship signed by both Pete and I. And of course, you will have our undying love. Speaking of love, we love doing this show, but it is not free. So your one-time uh, contribution of $35 would be great. Kind of dribbled to an end there, but past that, back to the show. Sports, 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 Pete. As we talked about in the first episode of the third season way back in March of 2019, you'll remember that I shared some stories about playing sports growing up. Well, here's a story I forgot to tell. Oh, good. Yeah. When I was about 10 years old, I was playing Mm -hmm. soccer in a league called BJS, Boulder Junior Soccer. And our coach always took notes about us on Mm -hmm. a clipboard to see how we fit best in the team. And during one practice, I saw the clipboard because we were all huddled together. And it was very easy to find my name, Pete, because unlike the list of my peers, there were so many words next to mine. After my name, he'd written, Tommy is so useful. As far as I'm concerned, the rest of these children can go play soccer in Mm -hmm. hell because I have seen the future of soccer and its name is Tom (laughs) W. Metz III. He's a big, strong, brave boy and will always only wear big, strong, brave boy pants. His daddy is very proud of his big, strong boy, but I wish I was Tom's daddy and not just his coach because he's so good at sports and being a big, strong boy. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little brave hey, boy. Sorry, daddy I just had to proud. get some more iced tea. My boy, I don't know, Dad. What is this play? Big, big, brave What's going boy, on Dad. right now? I'm a big, Why does that big, sound like me? Boy. Tom. Why am I doing the cats in the crate? What is this, Pete? What are you doing right now? What was that, that Pete? That was me, but I'm me. What are you doing Pete, right now? What are Pete, we doing? Why would you? That is so strange that that would just randomly happen, because that ties into exactly what I wanted to talk about this week. What a spectacular coincidence. Who's playing who now? Are you playing me? Are you playing I'm, yourself? I've are you I've always been audience? myself. What is going on right now? Pete, it sounded like me, but I'm me. How could it be? And with that, Pete, I start with a question. Oh, dear. Pete, what do you know about deep fakes? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Tech talk. Okay, that's weird that it's coming from you and also delightful. Deep fakes. So you just deep faked me. With you. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but it sounded pretty fake because I've never said those words. That's not what the, his clipboard said. <laughs> Avid listeners will remember written next to my name were two words, not useful. <laughs> so that was a rewrite of history. I think that was some sort of bot. That was a real Abe Lincoln kind of thing yeah. that you just did to me. So I do know a little bit about deepfakes. I know that they improved uh, Henry Cavill's mouth in Justice League. 
<laughs> by getting rid of the mustache or well, something? Because it, yeah, you know, he had a mustache because he had to come back. They did reshoots, but they wouldn't let him shave the mustache because he was already doing Mission Impossible. And so they they erased his mustache with computers and he looked right. terrible. And so the deep fakers came along and used their powers for good. And so you could search for for it. And actually, the deep fakers have made a better Henry Cavill than the studio. That is a really positive example of Yay, deepfakes. Deepfakes. I'm just trying <laughs> and to that's set all the deepfakes bar. are used for. I'm just trying yeah. to set the bar so high. I want to yes. start uh, in defense of deepfakes. That's Correct. my position today. <laughs> yes. Very, very quickly, deepfakes, which is a fairly lazy portmanteau of deep learning and fake, are a synthetic media in which a person in an existing image, audio, or video is replaced with someone else. While the act of faking content is not new, deepfakes leverage powerful techniques from machine learning and AI to manipulate or generate visual and audio content with a high potential to deceive. Thank you, Wikipedia. Take the rest of the day off. Because we are not a science podcast, I'm going to skip over how actually they are made and instead concentrate on why they make me anxious. Unlike the very handsome Mr. Cavill that Pete brought up, deepfakes are being used in fake celebrity pornographic videos, revenge porn, literal fake news, hoaxes, blackmail, and financial fraud. And at a time when misinformation is through the roof, deep fake technology has the potential to create absolute chaos because it presents a reality where people cannot easily trust what they see and hear. So now, Pete, that I've laid that, how do you feel about deep fakes? Well, first of all, I love that we live in an era, my friend, where you get to say words like literal fake news. And we have to parse that that exists. Because it got hijacked. Totally. <laughs> fake news became disagreed about news. Uh, <laughs> but this is literal fake news. Yeah, yeah, no, I hate it. And I, you know, I, I hate that. I, I love that the technology exists because it allows, you know, creatives to do some really amazing things. Uh, but the way it is being used to, to um, you know, to in the mouths of politicians and, you know, that that there are people who are getting our politicians to say things that they never said using their right. heads and mouths and faces is yeah. i find disagreeable it is very disagreeable and it's so realistic yeah. i have found there you can just do a quick uh, search on deepfakes and you can find plenty of examples actually a company named deep trace that was founded in 2018 to provide equipment to better detect deepfake audio and video. Uh, they published a report on the state of deepfakes, and it found more than 15,000 deepfake videos online, a 100% increase over just the year before. Wow. Because it's the bar to make these and the, the um, systems that you need in order to do these are just getting cheaper and easier and easier. Yeah, right. Do you do any deepfake stuff? Have you ever been... <laughs> do you do any deepfakes? Meaning like, what, I don't know, do you, you work with a lot of... me, man? <laughs> I look like you work with a lot of companies and stuff. I just didn't know if that was, I feel like you're a tech guy and you work with a lot of tech companies. Right. If any yeah. of them have ever bumped against this. No, I want to, I do want to tell you something that's interesting though, which I think you'll find interesting. So as you know, I edit a lot of podcasts. Mm -hmm. uh, have we ever talked about the tool Descript? No. Descript is, is an, a new entrant to 
podcast and and video editing, and it does things that are really cool. Uh, On the surface, and I'll just try to be brief, I take your audio file and my audio file from this podcast, and I drop it into the Descript editor. And what happens is I I line it up. I line the tracks up in a traditional kind of track editor so that you're talking, I'm talking, you're talking, I'm talking. It's it. It's our, but then I switch over to the script mode and it provides an incredibly high quality script, a transcript of our conversation. And to oh, edit okay. the podcast, I literally delete words that I don't want to be in the podcast. From the document? From the document. It's like I'm editing a Word document. Um, from there... Oh, so is, you can switch things all around? You, oh, you no. can. You can. You can literally edit a podcast by copying and pasting. I can copy a paragraph and move it to a different place. I can do all of that. I can select uh, uh the word uh, um, uh-huh. like uh. I can select that word, and there is an option that says, hey, do you want to delete all filler words? And it will go oh. through the entire document, find Ooh. all instances of uh, um, like, whatever, and just get rid and of allow them? me to delete them. And it will go ahead and edit the podcast in such a way that it sounds uh, seamless in most cases. Now, in some cases, you have to go back because it just doesn't sound g- sure all that great. But mostly, I, I find it to be incredibly good. Now, this is why I need to talk to you in the context of deepfakes, because it's amazing on its own. But if you subscribe to the pro version... They have what's called a, a feature that's called overdub. Okay. I talk to Descript for 10 minutes and it records my voice uh-huh. and it creates a likeness of my voice. Nope. And then in the script that I'm editing, if I misspoke and I said, so, um, you know, Audio Hijack version seven, version seven is out. And then I can select, that's wrong, it should have said, you know, version 21. And I can select version 21 and say overdub, type the words version 21, and it you uses don't overdub it. It my just, voice. It... Yeah, it creates <laughs> a, a synthetic version of Pete, and I can then record a podcast, full sentences uh, that are created out of wow. my voice. So just, just a minute ago, what people who were not watching the live stream would not know is that you said over and over again... The tax Port, papers, portmanteau? tax papers and portmanteau. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Now, yeah. in the finished version of this podcast, you you didn't I don't include the fact that you said, you know, you have to walk around carrying your tax papers. But really, it's about taxpayers um, right. in the your support bit. But I could have let you go. And just recreate that with an overdub of your voice. With everyone that I podcast with, I could have you go in and record your voice, and I could create a digital version of you. And I'm not kidding. It makes me really leery just that that exists. As as a podcaster, somebody's been doing it for, you know, a lot of years, It it's uh, I find it disconcerting. I have never used it. I've never used it. It seems, yeah, there's some eerie stuff. And it sounds like you're telling me that you no longer need me for this podcast. <laughs> you have a zillion hours of me talking. I sure you do. You just shove that in. I you sure can have do. me saying anything you want. Well, that, again, that started very positive, And that's a cool editing thing. Yeah. But then it ended negative. Because of all the terrible stuff that is happening with deepfakes, I always assumed that deepfake technology was created by jerks who wanted to use it for bad reasons. Not at all. Like in a science fiction movie, this is a case of scientists doing things because they can and not thinking about whether or not they should. Pete, I would love to play you something real quick. Sure. 
This is from a November 2019 episode of the Science Podcast Radio Lab. In this clip, you'll hear reporter Simon Adler talking to Ira Kemmelmacher-Schlitzerman, a professor in computer science at the University of Washington. Now, Kemmelmacher-Schlitzerman and her team were at the leading edge of deep fake technology. And during this clip, during this little snippet, I think you can hear her realize that her technology might not be a great idea in real time. We're in a moment where, where, where truth seems to be sort of a, an open, dis- what is true is, has become an open discussion. And this seems to be adding fuel on the fire of sort of uh, competing narratives in a way that I, I find troubling. And I'm just curious that you don't. Um, I think that, I think that people, if people know that such technology exists, then they will be more skeptical, my guess. I don't know. But if people know that fake news exists, if they know that fake texts exist, fake videos exist, fake photos exist, then everyone is more skeptical in what they read and see. But like a man in North Carolina, I think he was from North Carolina, believed from a fake print article that Hillary Clinton was running a sex ring out of a pizza parlor in D.C., which is like insane. This man believed it and showed up with a gun. And if people are at a moment where they are willing to believe stories as ludicrous as that, like I don't expect them to wonder if this video is real or not. Um, so what are you asking? I'm asking, well, I'm asking, do you, are you afraid of the power of this? And if not, Why? Just, I'm just giving my, op- I don't know, I just, uh, I'm answering your questions, yeah. but I'm a technologist, I'm a computer scientist, so um, not really, because I know how to, re- I know that, because I know that this technology is reversible. I mean, nobody, well, there is not, not worried too much. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> right. Oh my God. That's wow. That is pretty remarkable. That was back in 2019 when this stuff was just, when the leash was coming off. How could you not see the danger in this? Or wait, or am I being mean because misinformation has been such a hot button issue that I'm looking at this in hindsight. I don't think so. I think that right away you should see the negative implications of what this kind of stuff can do. Because I have such a hard time with having a bunch of, okay, scientists, you're all sitting around a table and somebody says, hey, I just invented this thing that could take Joe's face and (laughs) we could put any words coming out of Joe's face, Dr. Joe the scientist, that we want. And one of those things is you should check out Joe's pizza place that he runs, but he doesn't run a pizza place, let alone a child sex operation in the basement. Wouldn't Joe at some point say, wait a minute, I don't don't run a pizza (laughs) place. That would be, what is the, it's not a truth. What's the word? (laughs) What is that? Right? Like, how do you not see that? Yeah. Anything. I know. I just, oh my God. I know we have a tendency to take great technology and use it for its absolute basest, uh, most horrific utility. But this is, that you couldn't see this one coming is extraordinary. 
And it's in ways when I was doing research for this, just to point out just one or two other ways that it's being used is pretty fascinating. Uh, Francesca Panetta at MIT offered this up as an example of how a deepfake can be used for, if you remember on that list, financial fraud. With scheduled public quarterly earnings that are recorded, it would be possible to take a CFO's voice recording and turn it into what sounds like an urgent directive to employees to share their bank information. Oh my God. Or imagine a similar recording, but this time a CEO announces company-wide layoffs. The market responds. The stocks crash. The company goes under, all because of a deepfake. This is stuff that just never occurred to me. But the uses, to use the word that we used earlier, are legion. They are incredible. Um, And then one other thing occurred to me, I'm sure, when I say occurred to me, I'm sure it's out there uh, by far, but... Deepfakes don't just give someone the opportunity to disguise fake images a recording as real. It also provides an opportunity for people to dismiss real events as fake. Oh, no. Because now you can hide behind, think of the bus tape when Trump says he likes to grab women's anatomies. He adorably did come out and say, it's fake. He deepfaked himself before deepfaking was a thing. But if deepfakes are out there and acknowledged, then... Well, Everyone is, can say everything is This fake. is exactly what she was talking about. But she was talking about it giving humanity the credit that we do not deserve, right? No. She was suggesting <laughs> right. that, oh, don't worry. As long as everybody knows this stuff exists, of course they're going to check sources or like and play out what it would mean to live in a civil society where you can accept that this technology exists. We don't right. live there. We trust right. what we hear uh, because context is everything. Context yes. is everything. And looking at a deep fake demo, knowing you're looking at a deep fake demo, you can say, hey, that's amazing. But seeing somebody has deep faked old Harrison Ford into the face of young Harrison Ford in solo, yep, you kind of watch that for a second and think, wait, no, wait, was Harrison Ford actually in that? Or watching right. the Irishman and seeing what they do to de-age those guys, like that's right. the same technology and they're able to make reliable likenesses of these people at different points in their lives. You can yeah. generate fake histories from people. God, I regret even saying that out loud if somebody hasn't thought of it, right? Like, <laughs> right. I could create you as a youngster talking about, you know, your <laughs> There's no, there's no joke that finishes that. That's that's yeah, appropriate. I <laughs> but I can create that, like out of a uh, deepfake. I'm right. Uh, I'm a little bit on fire about this, Tom. I get it. So where do we go from here? <laughs> Down. No. One of the larger problems, as with all misinformation, of course, is this is a a bit of less of a problem of misinformation and more of a lack of critical thinking. That people are just taking it. And this is going to ramp that up. Um, that same person at MIT does say the social answer is we all build an immune system. We start asking ourselves questions. Who is the person presenting this image to me? Where did it come from? What is evident? What is actually authentic? And having that general demeanor of asking these questions certainly helps. To end on just a very brief good news story, um, just about one month ago when this comes out, a uh, 17-year-old student named Greg Tarr in Ireland won the big Ireland science contest. <laughs> I don't have it here. A, a major science contest uh, that students do for um, creating an AI that can detect faked videos over like 20% faster than anything that we've had 
up to date. And so even the young realize this is a problem. Yeah. And there are whole companies, like I mentioned, that other company, uh, Deep Trace, where the one good thing is enough people realize that this is a serious problem and they are running at it. Yeah, I think that's to, a, to try to that's really important because I I don't care for the solution of, you know, we have to develop an immunity for it, like counting on a cultural solution for this. And that's yeah. kind of the bind we're in. We don't know how to teach this kind of stuff yet. We don't know how to demonstrate what it means when for for kids to look for the right right sources, right information. We don't teach right. that like we like maybe like we used to. Um, I don't know, but we don't we're in an era of massive uh, just signal to noise issues, right? Like having right. to find good sources. We don't know how to teach it. I think demanding that kind of we have to develop an immunity is a little bit much. Is maybe a right? little too sure. Yep. But I think it does demonstrate that we that the the vaccine for this is more technology. And that's got to give you right. a little heartburn. It is more <laughs> systems to detect. And instead of having or maybe in addition to running antivirus software on your computer, you're going to have to run anti anti-lie software. Right. right? right? You're going to have to yep. have have something that that can flag and say, hey, this was manufactured. This is not authentic. Yeah, uh, I think that's what we have to do or do what I do and just get all your information from Parler. All right. <laughs> bye, everybody. <laughs>Thank you all so much for joining us for this episode. This week's tune is Flutes Will Chill by Kick Tracks. I'm Tommy Mess the Third, And I'm Pete Wright. Thank you for downloading. We'll be back next week on What's That? Smell?